Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money Way podcast. Today, I have an incredible guest. Her name is Deborah Greenhut. And she has a PhD in English. Now, I don't get to meet PhDs in English every day. But what's special about Deborah is I met her in a talk group. We're working towards doing TEDx talks. And Deborah, the first time I heard you give your talk, I was like, whoa, there is so much here. She has a powerful story to share. And I'm so happy that she's willing to share it here with us. Uh, Deborah, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself and... Uh, Let's have a fun conversation. That sounds good, Ed. It's a real pleasure to be here this morning, afternoon, I should say. I'm, um, well, as you said, I'm a PhD in English, and um, I grew up in New York State and live in New Jersey now. I've been a professor, a corporate trainer. I've worked in 48 different states and in Europe and Canada, uh, delivering professional presentations on communication skills and also teaching good old English composition. So I had a lot of uh, varied experiences in the area of writing and speaking and uh, transmitting your words electronically. So that's me in a kind of nutshell. And recently I did publish a novel called The Hoarder's Wife. Which is really why we're here, right? This is your personal story. The Hoarder's Wife is not your personal story, but it is. Can you help us understand what, what, what am I saying here? Sure. Let's see. I'll cut to the chase. And this is the, the, the difficult part. I'll say that out loud first. Yeah. My husband, after our long years of difficulty and a divorce, uh, took his own life by suicide. And uh, up until that point, we were divorced, and I really just wanted to put everything behind me and not think about it a lot. But at that point, I realized I better go back and reassess what had happened to me, you know, why I had stayed in a very long marriage, and so on. So I wrote a memoir first. I went back through all my journals, and um, I was kind of surprised to find out some things about myself that I had just rumbled along and lived with all those years and not really thought much about. Um, it had been pointed out to me, I guess, that I was a giver before, and you know, I really should learn to have some boundaries. But I hadn't understood how important that was in a hoarder household. So that was a, a huge insight that I got from doing the memoir. And then I thought, well, the story of my life is one thing, but I don't want to include material that would be hurtful to my family in any way. So I'm going to fictionalize this. I'm going to rewrite it as a novel, which gave me lots of um, free reign about who the character would be. And she happens to be a musician. I was uh. trained as a musician as a child. I thought I would become a concert pianist, but that did not happen. Yeah. So I have some experience there, but I didn't fulfill that dream. So this gave me a chance to play with that dream or that not dream because the character can't ever get the career going. And... Um, uh, also that I invented a sibling that I didn't have and uh, 
uh, some other characters to help move the narrative in a slightly different direction. So that was helpful to me. It also made it a lot easier to write because I found when I tried to re-edit the memoir, I was censoring a lot of things. I thought, oh, I really don't want to put that out there. But in a novel, it's fiction. I could, I could do it the way I want to do it. So That's so powerful on so many levels. But it sounds like just even the experience of going back and trying to make sense out of this very tragic ending to your own marriage, divorce, and then your husband's ultimate suicide. Being able to go back and you kept journals over your own years of life. And I know a number of people listening to this probably have that as part of their own processes. As they try to process and make sense out of life, they journal. I know that I do. But what you're saying is going back and reading through those as you try to prepare your own memoir really opened up some things for you at a deeper level. Is that? Yes, that's true. Wow. And one of those things that you heard is that you had heard it before is that you're a giver, that you maybe need to not be so giving. But you couldn't really come in contact with that until you went through your own journals. And tell us a little bit more about that, because I know this is a, a really big pattern for a lot of people where they give so much of themselves, and yet at some level it's to their own detriment. Yeah, I think um, it's one thing to offer to take care of things for people or help them out and do favors for them and or do errands or whatever it is. but. I was giving at such a radical level to my husband in terms of the space in our house, the um, space in my life in order, I had to give up my career, I had to give him the time available so he could function in his own. And I hadn't understood how all that fit together. Um, but there was a, a story, this is a, a more fun story, I guess it's not in, in the book, but when I was three years old, I was in a beauty contest to become Miss Freckle of Miami Beach, Florida. Uh-huh. And uh, the it was a weird contest because they had children and adults, and I guess I was the, one of the few children, but I won, long story short. Uh, yeah. And they put the crown on my head, and some older woman came up and snatched it away and said, that's mine, I won it. And I just looked at her and I handed it to her because I thought this lady shouldn't be so happy. And I gave her the crown. Whereupon my parents flew into a rage. There was a scuffle. It was very upsetting. And that was kind of a, a life, life motif for me that, okay, if you're unhappy, I'll do this for you. And uh, I hadn't really put all of that together in terms of living with someone who just was so needy for my time, my space, my energy, everything, everything in our lives. And uh, suddenly that's what clicked into place when I was thinking about it as a novel. What, what's the common thread here? Where, where do I go for a literary understanding of what happened? Because that's the thing that makes the most sense to me all the time. And there it was. Right under your nose the whole time. But until you had to write your own story of your life, it didn't really sink in. You know, in the world of financial therapy, we call um, early childhood experiences like what you're talking about financial flashpoints, mm-hmm. where we give some meaning in our childhood uh, mind to this event about who we are and what we should do in light of other people. And, you know, there's this whole status piece with getting a crown and being named, and then you see this angry or upset adult wanting it and it's like I mean you're powerless at three years old to do anything about this but then you're watching your parents really big emotional reaction and what's happening for you there 
Wow. So it's so important. And I hope, you know, as people listen to this, they realize like you've had experiences in your life that have shaped the way you show up in this world, right? That's pretty much undeniably true for all of us. Yes. The question is, do we really understand the meaning and impact of those experiences? And then we give it space to help us start to change maybe the way we function in our world if it's impacting us. And, and so I'm curious about that. You, so you have this little Miss Freckle experience. Obviously, you go through life. You end up married. And what's the unfolding of becoming a hoarder's wife? What does that, what does that mean? Well, I would say in the beginning, there were probably signs and symptoms that you ignore, which I, I find common ground with uh, among other hoarders' uh, family members when I read about their stories or talk to them. Um, my husband, the, fir- the first date we had, said I had a choice between his motorcycle and a very cluttered car. And I had just come off uh, a broken ankle, so I didn't want to go on the motorcycle just yet. I did later, but... Yeah. And I picked the cluttered car, and something, some light should have gone off for me because my car wasn't cluttered like that. And yet, he was an absent-minded professor, uh, you know, through and through. And that was kind of amusing at first, except over time, the misplaced items, the forgotten appointments and all of that really built up to become a huge problem for the family as well as the marriage. Um, so I, I think I... I didn't willfully ignore things. I just thought, okay, this is the way he is. And I have a lot of papers, too, because I'm a professor and I, you know, I've got all these graded things to grade, except he was much less functional about it for someone who'd been at it about eight years longer than I had. So I thought he really doesn't have a system. Uh-huh. And somehow I got drawn into helping him with that at first, although later on he just really didn't want any help. And that that proved to be where things were taking a, a kind of evil turn. How so? Well, our house became uh, dysfunctional pretty early. It was difficult, let's say, to have friends over for dinner because the cleanup just became more and more difficult each time we invited people. There was more and more stuff to move out of the way. And it was excused as his work, so we weren't allowed to to move it ourselves, and my, my kids and I. And my kids would often clean up for him, and he would, it, you know, within hours it would be just as bad or worse than it started. So there were a lot of annoying little fights that might be the stuff of marital conflict and seemed to be to our marriage counselor um, yeah. for a long time. Uh, so I think... A lot of it was masked because it wasn't understood. People didn't know that adults could have ADHD. Uh, people uh, didn't know much about hoarding at the time. I think now it's a disorder of its own. Um, right. But it—it's you know—it it grows. It's not—it's not all there from the beginning. But then suddenly one morning you wake up and you can't believe the devastation of your home. And that's part of the challenge of the hoarding disorder, as as it is from a lot of mental health disorders is they're progressive. Yes. They, 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 they don't start out as, as the final place, but it just gets worse and worse, especially if unattended and not treated or understood appropriately. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, I, I feel, I felt terrible for my husband at 55 to find out you had this mental disorder and that's what was keeping you from achieving and succeeding the way you thought you should be able to. Cause my husband was brilliant absolutely brilliant and I'm not yeah. making any kind of exaggeration here and he just could not settle down and get the work done 
Well, and that's really that I think sometimes the misunderstanding is that intellectual brilliance is somewhat independent of a mental health condition. Yeah. And then sometimes mental health condition can drive greater brilliance. And so there's a very interesting relationship there. Well, it may drive a certain kind of brilliance, you know, but the question of who is going to cook dinner and put it on the table is not a brilliance issue. So, so no, that's no. a lot of conflict there. Um, it's true. I mean, I, I could marvel at it. He, he did become a distinguished professor, which is the, the kind of funny part of, of all this. But he, of course, wanted to do, or not of course, but he wanted to achieve more and more and more. And the more he had difficulty mobilizing, the more the pressure became for him. So his whole, all of his self-esteem was wrapped up in that achievement. So would you say that in some ways the more successful he became, the more disordered he became? Well, I think there was kind of a, a little bit of leveling off at 55. And to this day, I'm not sure whether there were some... Um, Physi- physiological issues on top of whatever disorders were being uncovered at that point that were never really attended to. Um, there are, are some illnesses, for example, that could cause the kind of inattention that he was displaying at that point, which it may have made it worse or may have just been yet another factor and another reason because he seemed to be kind of dropping off in midlife in terms of how much he could do. And don't we all, but yes, right. And I guess that's that challenge of distinguishing between some normative decline or shift and true, like, uh, adverse decline, like beyond what's normative or expected. Yeah. Yeah. I could give you a, an example of, sure. of that, which I think think might be helpful. And when we were going to a marriage counselor, we had a lot of issues with money, let's just say, but we'll take the checkbook as one example. My husband yeah. could not allow me to write in our joint checkbook because of his perfectionism. He preferred to add in his head or subtract in his head. And if I used that little extra line in between the two items, it would be uh. just blow his mind. He couldn't handle it. So our therapist felt we'd be better off if we could do these things together. So he was trying to coach us in how to. And I realized my husband was probably making a lot of math errors, which he never would have admitted. And he was an engineer, so this was impossible. How could this be? And yet, he, every morning, every weekend morning, when he tried to do the checkbook and pay the bills, it would take hours to pay four bills, just hours. And there would be screaming, and the, the kids had to be quiet in the house. Um, and it was just, we used to call it the Saturday morning massacre, the kids and I, because it just turned into a nightmare every time. And the therapist thought maybe there was something I could do, and he kept looking for ways I could change my behavior. And I did, except none of them worked. And in retrospect, I realized there's perfectionism, there's ADHD, all of it wrapped up into the checkbook. But because at that time it was assumed to be a marital conflict, we were treating it the wrong way. It's so important for people to hear this that... uh, and that it's not just a marital conflict. Sometimes it's a mental health issue mm-hmm. and it looks like a marital conflict. And it, because it is, there is a conflict between the marital relationship. Right. But if we're not understanding the underlying mental health issue or disorder, there's a problem there. And then, you know, Deborah, I'm curious in your own journey about 
the link between childhood trauma and later adult life uh, mental health disorder, if, if that's much that you've covered in your work? Um, I, did, I did address it a bit. We, I'd say there was another uh, therapy moment, and I did put this in the book in a slightly different form, but we were asked to each tell a story about a time where our parents didn't behave very well toward us, that it was, it was un- unhappy for us. Yeah. And I found out that my husband never had his own bedroom. Um, he was living with his parents in the apartment, and he had a sibling, and that person, ha- the other person had the bedroom, and he had to sleep in the dining room. Mm. And if I had to make a psychological connection about ADHD and, and hoarding, it would be right there because the man never had any privacy. He never had space to himself, and he grew up not wanting to see an uncovered table. Whereas uh. as a child, he had to uncover the table all the time. And make sure everybody else had room to do what they were going to do, but there wasn't any place for him. And that my heart just, I I think we, that I had told a a different story. My my mother had a particular brand of cruelty sometimes that that was traumatic to me. Uh Um, She used to wash my face and tell me I was impure and I was dirty. And she would... Make me then when I was older, she would make me wash my face four or five times before I could come down to breakfast every morning and scream at me about it. And um, I had a lot of freckles, you know that already, but I did have a lot of freckles, except my face wasn't dirty. I washed my face myself every morning and Uh I was pretty good at it. And I knew this was crazy, and my dad knew it was crazy, but he Uh couldn't interfere. And it just went on for years until finally, I think I was. Probably just, it was the year before I went to college. I finally looked at her. I said, not doing this anymore. That's it. Which Uh, probably saved my life. I don't, I don't know. But I I just, that contributed to a lack of self-esteem in me that certainly was, was harmful as I went through the rest of my life. And we told those stories to each other on that day. Mm. And I just fell in love all over again. I thought, how, how, you know, how could this be for either of us? How do we live? Yeah. How the, the compassion. So there was, there was an awful lot of love between us, except there was also all the other mental health problems between us. Well, it, it strikes me that, you know, and I appreciate you sharing the tenderness of that story because it, that is really the heart of mental health. The more, the further I go along in my care for clients and, in the literature is that there's a pretty strong link between early childhood experiences, adverse childhood experiences, and adult mental health issues. And it's not a, a direct one-for-one in the sense of, like, my mom's emotionally cruel to me, I'm going to have ADHD. It, it can manifest in a, a wide variety of different mental health conditions. But the underlying experiences of trauma, of disrespect, of lack of safety, lack of boundaries... Uh, you know, in some ways I use the metaphor, it creates a fun house of mirrors in our mind and brain. Yeah. And it, part of our adult developmental work oftentimes is trying to work through and reconcile that and have to do some really hard work about what's actually true in life, what's actually mm-hmm. feels good and right. And it's, you have these different experiences where there's an invasion to your space and privacy as your husband had. Um, and some of that probably was contextual. Maybe there wasn't enough family money to be able to afford a three-bedroom apartment or or whatever. I, you know, I don't know all the details there. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure about about that. I think there was a, a 
uh, thinking long-term issue for them, for their own retirement, which served them very well. Um, so there was a, a point of resent, at least resent, a little resentment there on his part. You know, understandable. Um, they traveled on that bedroom, so... Oh, they they were more interested in meeting their own financial needs and not meeting the needs of their son. Mm-hmm. I think and so. He, yeah, that's your understanding, of course. Yeah, and, and then he had another sibling who did was afforded a bedroom. Yeah, and was was probably the got the most favored nation status in the family for everything. So, oh, that happens a lot with siblings too, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And they, they do say now that there's a strong connection between hoarding and trauma, childhood trauma, which finally has allowed for some psychotherapy. Uh, when we were going through this, the theory or, I get, well, hypothesis was anyway that you had to treat uh, hoarding with uh, only CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, and the emotions were just not important. You just had to learn new behavior. And how heartbreaking in retrospect now that I know a little bit more about it. It is heartbreaking. Oh. I'm just going to say this, and I have such mixed feelings about my own profession um, as a mental health professional. It is really a human endeavor, and it's far from perfect. And as much as we try to strive and use science, sometimes the science stymies us. But we're really working with the human condition and the full totality of being a human. And my my feeling is, if any mental health professional is telling you to cut off relationships, thoughts, feelings, or behaviors, or beliefs, it's probably not really taking into full consideration the complexity of being a human. And when we're in a therapeutic relationship, we need a therapist that can work with us on all the dimensions of being a human. And um, that, that is just so important because yeah. there is a lot of pain there. And um I think sometimes the protocols get in the way and it's not the therapist so much as trying to do a good job within the framework that's been presented for this particular ailment or this diagnosis. And um, I think it it costs a lot in terms of uh, families um, when someone is too rigid about the protocol and not looking at the group of people who are actually with you. I couldn't agree with you more. And that's, you know, there's a... As people are listening to this, there's these four factors that, that are shaping your mental health care beyond what you may be aware of. But in the search for having evidence-based practices for providing therapy, they have to write protocols and tight definitions because that's what makes it testable. Mm-hmm. The challenge is that it starts to exclude a lot of important details oftentimes in order to meet the protocol. And so the protocol may meet scientific standards, but still miss important details. And so as a consumer of mental health services, the last thing you want is to have to understand the healthcare system while you're trying to get help while you're in distress. But I think much like people are becoming more and more aware that they need to be their own physical healthcare advocates and understanding that, you know, the doctor is doing the best they can with their training but the doctor also has limits in their understanding. The same is true of the mental health field is, you know, we, it's what keeps me up at night. If anything else is I'm limited by my own understanding of the human condition and what to do to help alleviate suffering. And Mm -hmm. I want to try to hold open and wide as much as possible, but 
I have my own constraints. So, Debra, sure. uh, you're really opening up something that's so powerful. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. You're really opening up something that's so powerful. As you reflect on your own story and seeing this, what else would you say about relationships and money and mental health and how they all intersect is important for people to be aware of if they're on this journey and hearing this, that they can learn from you? Well, I think sometimes it's difficult to balance that there's a valuable person underneath that iceberg of problems that's presenting itself to you. And you're, you may only be seeing the, the top segment where the problems are. And yeah. it's helpful to remember that there is that valuable person there. So I'm grateful for those few times where our therapist gave us a breakthrough like that. I don't know what my husband made of those stories after the day of the session, but for me, those were eye openings. That, that's one thing. Another is that if there are problems like the checkbook and there seem to be other complicating symptoms. Probably this is going to proceed to your taxes, to all of your finances, your credit cards. Um, I would say my husband spent a lifetime trying to hide his disabilities in that area. And because of his own professional training, which was engineering, everyone assumed that he would be a whiz kid at the finances. And unfortunately, and I didn't realize it for a very long time because he kept everything a secret. Um, in those days, well, when I got married, women could not get their own credit cards in their own name still. So that's a while ago. Um, oh, and that's yes. not a good thing. Um, I, you know, as soon as I could, I did. Um, but I will tell you that living without those resources and without checks in my back pocket or some way of getting cash was a very awkward um, situation for me with two small children growing up. Um, and there were other kind, there were family arguments about money too that probably you know just drove right into that same that same uh, harbor. But because of the hoarding, my husband hid bills, uh, invoices, checks that he was getting for himself, for work that he had done, um, reimbursements from insurance companies. And we kept having a fight about cash flow. And I kept saying, well, where is it going? I don't understand. And he would show me how I had spent all the money. So that was the end of that conversation, which was not true. But uh-huh. it, it looked like that's what was happening as I paid. You know, I took care of groceries and shopping for the kids and most of the things besides the mortgage. As I did that, money would disappear and it wouldn't be replenished. And I kept thinking, where are your paychecks going? And he insisted on having them go to his office and he would bring them home. Only he didn't bring them home. Uh, uh-huh. And one fine day I found thousands of dollars in uncashed checks under a tarp on the porch. 
Wow. This was wow. after the taxes were not done for the umpteenth time, and we'd had all those fights. And I started going through things, and I realized, oh, my gosh, I have just closed my eyes and kept the blinders on all this time, and who knows how far back this goes. And I found five years' worth of insurance reimbursements that weren't collected. And unfortunately, I mean, I'm a good researcher. I was able to go back and recover a lot of it, but the labor of doing that was so aggravating and so frustrating, and I could not get through to him. And... Um, his therapist actually had given up on him because he couldn't stop obsessing, ironically enough. Um, and I, there was no one else to oh. turn to. I mean, we just, we had yeah. a, yeah. you know, a kind of perfect storm of events coupled with this decreasing ability to handle his own life. This is really complex stuff, and it's so important to highlight. And it's, I think one of the things I'm hearing from you, Deborah, is trying to as best as you can influence those forces that stop you from looking at things to keep your eyes open, to keep trying to look and to keep getting the help. But at the same time, recognizing like even the therapist you're working with, and I'm sure they are a great person. They are well-intended. They want to do the best, but they hit their limits. And this is, Hmm. you know, I would encourage people if you're finding that you're getting stuck is try to find another therapist, try to find another one because, and you know, I think now it's, you know, I encourage people I make sure that they're trauma informed. Just ask them, what role do you see trauma having in mental health issues? And if they can't answer that question, then maybe it's time to find another therapist. But, you know, it's, I appreciate you sharing this very tangible story of how checks are hidden under a tent or a tarp on the back porch. The money just goes hiding and that that's a big sign that there's, if you're, if you're a, uh, wanting to make sense of the finances and you can't, and you're a reasonably sound mind, there is, that's a good sign that there's something else going on that really does warrant getting help. Yeah. I mean, I had done my parents' estates, and I worked with the accountant. I didn't do it by myself, but I understood enough about how to do taxes, and I kept thinking, it shouldn't take hours and hours of frustration to do hours. My parents were more complicated. And yeah. it was never that we didn't have enough money. We lived so close to the, you know, to our budget that and below it that we always had enough money. It's just that sometimes it could not be found. Uh, wow. I, I mean, I think that was really the crux of it. Everything got lost. Everything disappeared. And, and I also want to say, because people listening may be freaking out if they have to find a therapist, that this was 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, and people did not know about adult ADHD. And I may have said yes. that before, but that's so important to understanding this, because a specialist at that time really didn't have a, a lot of deep field of knowledge in that yeah. area. And it was my our marital therapist who called me back and said, you know, we didn't know this 20 years ago, but the more I'm reading about this, the more I see this is like hoofbeats toward ADHD. Maybe we can get an evaluation for him at least and see what yeah. else we can do. So it was lucky that we had an, you know, some kind of intervention, but unfortunately there weren't a lot of people equipped to handle it afterwards. I, mean, I do. I'm glad that we're bringing this back up because it is so important to realize that the field of knowledge on mental health and mental health diagnosis is advancing and advancing rapidly, and it has changed a lot in 20 years. And 
30 years and what we understand about the human mind. And I don't know why I'm kind of even flashing back. Deborah, you were talking about your mom insisting on washing your face multiple times a day. And it seemed like there was some kind of moral or religious overtones to that. My mother had her own trauma and I, I was aware of it most of my life. So I, I had to, in the back of my mind, I had to be forgiving, but I didn't have to accept this. But she, um, her mother died giving birth to her. Mm. And if that wasn't bad enough, she was given away to another family. And her father kept her three older siblings. Now, uh, I give her tremendous credit for reconnecting with that family and sure. doing her best to make a relationship with her sisters and her brother. Yeah. But it stayed with her, and she was also raised Catholic. Our family is uh, Jewish, and my mother's mother had been Jewish, but her husband uh, was, her, my grandfather was uh, uh, Irish Catholic also. So my mother was given to an Irish Catholic family, and the Catholic liturgy was very much with my mother. I think the church probably gave her some comfort as a child, as much as it just, it you know, she imbibed it to such a degree that she couldn't ever question it. And when uh, she converted back to Judaism, it's, I'm not sure whether she needed to, but she did, uh, she just in, took all of that information along to Judaism. And there's so many conflicts in those two. We were Orthodox at first, so there were so uh, many conflicting orthodoxies there. I don't know how she kept it straight. So it would come out in those moments, I guess, you know, I tried to think about, was she having a particularly difficult day? Was something else going on? And there was a background story with my dad, so I, I have to give my mom some some credit, although it was just a torture. It was a nightmare for me. I can imagine it being a nightmare. And you have, as we all do, parents that are living out their lives and their stories and trying to do the best they can and and the evolving life. And they're, as kids, we're we don't have a lot of choice or ability to even understand all of this. We're just no. living through it. No, well, my mom and I were alone for a couple of years while my dad was away in, in Korea being a MASH surgeon during the war. And I think because we were so alone, I heard a lot of things from her that a two- and three-year-old, one, one two- and three-year-old never would have heard. And the, um, I hate to call it this, but kind of the, the whole adoption story card was her trump card against me all the time. And mm -hmm. I felt so much for her. I felt so sad that this had happened. I even invented a backstory for myself that I was probably adopted and she just didn't want to tell me. So I told my father that after my mother died. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not what happened at all. Yeah, but yes. but I invented that story so I would be like her and I would be able to understand her. And I actually thought about these things very consciously from a very young age. So, you know, I was I was her kind of alter something. I don't know if ego is the right word even, but yeah. I was her alter identity for, for much of my life. The way she the way she looked at it. Well, and I think, you know, my understanding of childhood psychology is that we do try to internalize our parents and take on their stories because we don't have a full sense of self as children. We're filling in a lot of blanks and our that's where we're kind of the blank canvas side of things, right? Yeah. Because we need to fit into whatever culture or family we're born into. And so we're absorbing that. And so that's your mother's story. And then hearing her use her own pain and trauma kind of to sound you didn't say this and so if i'm wrong please correct me but kind of manipulate or control you sometimes yeah i think i think she did and i think 
sometimes what it seemed like was coming out with things that had been said to her that she now was transferring to me. I don't know if to exercise them from herself or because she thought that was the right way to do things since that's the way she was probably raised. Um, But I had to sort all that out pretty early to be able to go on with my day. And I could accept the bargain. I had to live there. They were taking care. These people were taking care of me. But I knew at some point I would have to leave. You knew from a relatively young age that you were going to have to get out. Yeah. Well, my mother would run out of cash all the time. She'd borrow money from me, and she wouldn't give it back. And, okay, she was taking care of me. It's my allowance, whatever. But one day I said something in front of my father, Uh. and the roof went off the house. And... I, you know, I broke the deal. So I know I knew what that was from after after that. I was not going to let that happen again. So. So there was this arrangement where your mom would give you allowance. Well, my dad would give me the allowance. And uh, your dad would give you allowance. And, and I was a would? saver. I was a saver. So my mother knew I always had cash if we went to the store and she didn't have cash. Oh, right. Because she wasn't a saver. She wasn't as controlled with the money. Was your saving, do you think, in some ways a response to mom's spending? Yeah, I was terrified. My parents my parents had a lot of arguments about money. It usually ended with my mother winning. My mother got to do pretty much... My dad wanted to do everything for my mother. He felt sorry for her. He wanted her to have a good life. And he would uh, almost never question her. But sometimes the cash flow was a little bit awkward. So, so right. we would get to the supermarket and she would have gone shopping that day at Saks, but... She didn't uh-huh. have money for groceries, so she would take mine. I thought, uh-huh. okay, we're in the same family. You know, it's, it's our money, yeah. whatever. Which is such an interesting part of family and money is mine individually and ours collectively. And mom's going yeah. and shopping at a high-end department store and then not having any money for groceries. Right. And I think it was a cash situation. Like she just ran out of cash that day, but she wouldn't give it back. And that's that's where I wondered, you know, what is going on here? There was little awareness that it would be appropriate to give it back to you, that you would actually miss it. Yeah, I don't don't think so. Yeah. And when confronted, she would just get angry. So it it wasn't worth it. Ah, right. Yeah. So you really learn, I mean, this part of that, that theme that you've shared is that giving of yourself and don't make people angry and they're just going to get angry if I say anything, so I can't say anything. And that that's part of that bigger pattern that I've seen with so many of my clients too is they learn that and then they bring that into their marriage. And that, that's part of that, you know, the blindness even to looking at the money or and trying to look at it and you had that intuition for saving, which may have been really attractive initially to your husband. Yeah, I think so. I mean, his parents were worried that my parents spent too much money, and they did. Um, but they, um, you know, they didn't yeah. ask us for anything, so it wasn't that kind of thing. But uh, they were worried, so they said, "You got to watch her. You have to be in control of this." And his father was never very big on letting women have any financial responsibility, so he inherited that gene. Well, and that's part of this broader cultural dynamic that yeah. that we're still working out as a society is yeah. what does it mean to I mean, God, it feels terrible. I don't know if this is right. What does it mean to let women be equal in money? Yeah. It's, it, it feels so absurd coming out of my mouth, but really <laughs> it's a, a question that society we're asking 
And how do we? We do still that? don't know because we don't pay them the same way. So how how would we find out? No, well, and we're having you know it's and it's to me the the side of the conversation that's going really well is we need to do this. We need to support women. We need to help keep moving them and giving them financial equality. The side of the conversation I feel like is often missing is how do we help men adjust to this new reality? Because yeah. you know we're as a male and talking with other males even for those of us that are on the progressive side and say, yes, this is the right way to go, there can still be a lot of fears and anxieties and shame that comes up around this repositioning of who we are to each other relationally. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that that's a two-way street, too. Even if one person changes, then the other one has to cope with that, too, even if it's for a good change. it's Yeah, I think you just nailed it, right? Even good change means both people are having to change. and. Yeah. When that, when the the system doesn't allow space for that, it makes it just about the individual. It really is quite problematic. Yeah, Deborah, this is such an incredible conversation. There's so many more questions I could ask you. I could probably talk for four hours, five hours, in one stint on this. But as we're going to bring this interview to a close, can you share a story that you really love from uh, the hoarder's wife, and you know? I want to get people hooked on your book. I want them to be so excited about reading this book. I don't want to give away. I, I think I, I started to tell it when I was talking about being in the therapist's office the day he asked us about the mutual trauma. And yeah. we told each other those stories about my mother's face washing and then um, my husband's experience in not having his own room or having a place to put anything of his own. And when we walked out to the car, we'd had six months of pretty good alienation going before that. <laughs> and I noticed he walked over and he held the door for me. And then he held the door open of the car for me, which was something he hadn't been accustomed to doing or doing at all. And he put his hand on mine when I went to get into the car. And wow. those were the moments that I lived for. And unfortunately, those became too few and far between, right. you know, in the midst of a lot of his own angry frustration with himself and the world, and finally yeah. with me. Yes. So, so I wanted, wanted to see why I stayed, and some of those moments had been lost to me. My kids often would ask me, Don't I, didn't I remember anything good? And of course, this is their, his, this is their history, too. And sometimes I would say, you know, I really, at this point, I'm, I have a lot of grief about it, and I can't think of a good time. Of course, when I was with you, I had wonderful memories, and I can tell you about those. But it was hard for me to reconstruct that. And there really was a lot of love there. You know, we got married yeah. very quickly. And, and that's in the book, too, in, in, in ways that um, maybe wasn't in my life. But I tried to resurrect a lot of that, um, partly as a promise to my kids, but also because the story needed yeah. to have those in order to to keep moving forward. Otherwise, it didn't make any sense for the character Grace to uh, stay in, in that house. Wow. Well, I'm so excited for people to check out this book. I will definitely have a link to the book in the bio for this show. Um, any, any parting words of advice, guidance, or a question that you would leave people with? 
Yeah, I would reiterate something you said in part, and that is, first of all, if you experience things that are really just not jiving with your understanding of the world, you need to get help right away. Don't wait on the hoarder issue. If someone gets to level five, you're not going to change them. Right. Um, they can't change themselves then. It's very different. I mean, it, it could be done, but it's very hard. And if the help is not good, help is not right for you, it doesn't feel right or the procedures seem all wrong, you need to make a change. And you need to get an agreement with your spouse to do that uh, because it will go nowhere. I was told I was not the right kind of wife for my husband along the way and a <sighs> few other choice things that were just shocking, I think. Uh, there, was a, there was a circle of empathy that needed to be formed there and it never happened. So you must get the right kind of help. That's very important. And good luck. Yes, thank you. I, people can't see it, but I grabbed my hair and pulled it as Deborah was telling me this because I... I just like, I can, the things I hear that couples therapists have said to couples, I'm just like, I don't, I, you the loving kind empathic. Okay. But the, whoa, how could that be a good answer? So yes, we partner with people for reasons, knowable and unknowable. And if someone is with, if you are partnering with someone, there's a reason why you're there with them. And it's the job of a great couples therapist to really help them understand that and work through it and then figure out what they want to do and whether it's never the couples therapist's choice to end the relationship or not. It's their couples. They get to decide what that relationship means to them. And I think in you said it earlier in the interview is that the intrinsic worth or the value of that person beneath all the frustrating things is that there's still a real living human beneath all of that. And if we miss connecting with that, we're really missing our best shot at, at restoration. Ah, what an incredible, powerful uh, interview. I hope for anybody that is thinking, man, my partner might have hoarding disorder, might have or does have ADHD, that if you're not getting the care you need, that you find it. If you're getting care and it's not making progress, that you you start asking the hard questions and seeing if there's another person that might be a better fit. And of course, check out the hoarder's wife so that you don't feel alone in this reality because there are many people suffering with varying degrees of hoarding disorder out there in ADHD. Deborah, thank you so much for your generosity and spirit. And we'll look forward to talking to you again. My pleasure, Ed. Thanks very much. You're welcome. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money at... Ed.